Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. Canadian True Crime is a completely independent production, funded through advertising and direct donations. The podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. This story is about a close-knit family called the Bullocks, who lived in a funeral home in Barrie, Ontario. The father of the family was a funeral director, and they lived with their five children in living space directly over the top of the funeral home. Having been exposed to the reality of death and the business of death care all their lives, the Bullock family were quite spiritual. For this family, death was just as much a part of life as living itself. They spoke about it often as though it was something that all families did. They were pragmatic in their belief that everyone has their time. But as the siblings grew up, they brought in new partners and grew their own families. New people mean new family dynamics, causing complexities within relationships, and cracks can turn into canyons. In 2006, the Bullock family would find themselves having to confront their beliefs about death and family in the most devastating of ways. Colin Bullock is one of the five siblings, and in 1991, he and his then-wife Tammy welcomed a son called Brayton, an easygoing little boy with dark brown hair. As he grew up, everyone knew Brayton as fun and friendly. He was well-liked and the centre of his parents' world. 
He was also a bright spark in the wider Bullock family and was especially close with one of his cousins, Kyla. The two were the same age and pretty much inseparable. When Brayton was about eight years old, his parents made the decision to separate. It was completely amicable, and Colin and Tammy remained close friends and co-parents after that, making sure to keep their family connection close and Brayton their number one priority. It worked. Brayton continued to thrive. He got excellent grades at school and was a popular kid. In the years after his parents separated, they each went on to remarry, gifting Brayton with three step-siblings. Colin's new wife had a son who was a little older than Brayton, and as teenagers, the two boys had a lot in common. Matt and Brayton got on like a house on fire. They loved listening to music. Brayton loved rock and country. And then when the boys got into the Knights of the Round Table, there was no going back. They were enamoured with the legend and the mythology, and Brayton loved to research the clothing, the weapons, and anything he could find about the medieval period in history. He saved his money to buy knight-themed books and swords. And then, he and Matt had decided to take up an ambitious project. They were going to research and write a fiction book all about Knights of the Round Table. They excitedly started putting plans together. Now, while Brayton was enamoured with all things related to knights, he also loved to write poems and spend time out in nature taking photos. His goal was to one day take photos for National Geographic, and anyone who knew Brayton had no doubt that he would achieve it. He was strong and decisive, but also considerate. And he seemed to have a sixth sense sometimes. He would comment sometimes in passing that he knew he wasn't going to live long, One time, his father Colin overheard, and even though he was used to death being a topic of conversation, this was a little beyond that. Brayton must have seen his father's surprised face and reassured him, I'm okay with it, you don't have to be scared. It wasn't the first time Brayton had said or written something that surprised his parents. When he was just 11 years old, he wrote a poem called My Identity, where he pondered what would happen if there were no such thing as murderers and referred to there being less feuds within family. His parents had no idea where the inspiration for the poem came from, nor did they know that Brayton's words would prove to be prophetic. Now, while the Bullock family were close-knit with five siblings at the centre, including Brayton's dad Colin, there was one notable exception. One of the siblings, Sean, Brayton's uncle. From the family's perspective, Sean's wife didn't take to them and resisted taking part in the combined family activities and get-togethers. Sean and his wife had a son called Nick, who was just two years older than Brayton. But because of the divide between Nick's mother and the Bullock family, Brayton was lucky if he saw his cousin once a year, if that. Even though the family did what they could to make sure Nick was able to come for some family events, the sad truth was that they didn't know each other well. It put Sean in an awkward position, because he'd always been very family-oriented, but found himself in the middle between his wife and his extended family. And really, if anyone needed the love and support offered by an extended, close-knit family, it was their little boy, Nick. 
According to later reporting by the Toronto Sun, Nick had struggles starting in grade one. He was clearly intelligent, but he was always in trouble, got into fights and resisted attending school. In grade two, his parents separated and the family divide grew wider. Nick's mother was reluctant to let him see his father and by extension, the Bullock family. By the time Nick was a teenager, he was defiant. He skipped school a lot and had started dabbling in drugs. After a while, he also began selling them. Sean made it known that he wanted to be in his son's life more, but he found himself powerless to do anything but watch from afar as Nick spiralled out of control. The teenager seemed to be at a significant disadvantage. From a young age, his behavioural struggles had not been treated effectively, and now, with a fractured family, he did not have access to the structure and approach he needed. The circumstances dictated that Nick would become a bit of a family pariah, that bad boy teenage cousin who was always getting into trouble. But the Bullock family loved Nick and made it clear that they were there for him, and the message was heard loud and clear. At 15, Nick was spotted by his uncle Terry on the street. After chatting for a few minutes, Nick told his uncle that he was struggling at home. Terry brought Colin, Brayton's father, into the conversation. Nick confided in his uncles that he was having a hard time living with his mother and her partner. He needed a new place to live. Terry offered to have his nephew move in, but on the strict conditions that he abide by the house rules, and attend school. They came to an agreement and Terry enrolled Nick in the local high school starting September of 2005. Now Brayton was very close with his extended family, particularly that same Uncle Terry and his family. Brayton was always over there spending time with them, often joined by his cousin Kyla. With Nick living there too now, Brayton and Kyla would inadvertently end up spending time with the cousin they saw very little of when they were younger. Nick would have observed the closeness of the Bullock family, the cousins who were best friends, the uncles and aunts who helped each other out. A supportive family that he'd only caught the occasional glimpse of and perhaps would have enjoyed spending more time with, but couldn't. And of course, there was his cousin Brayton, two years younger and seemingly the polar opposite. Popular, excellent grades, never short of attention from girls. Where Nick was perceived as the rebel of the family, Brayton seemed to be a golden child. At first, things seemed to go okay with Nick living at his uncle's house. But over the next three months, Terry discovered that the 15-year-old had been skipping school and bumming around, and it was becoming more and more frequent. It was also discovered that Nick had stolen money out of Terry's youngest son's piggy bank. So, in November of 2005, Terry and Colin got together to have a discussion with their nephew and his mother about the situation. It was the final straw, and Terry had had enough. Nick had to find somewhere else to live. But unfortunately, the 15-year-old did not take kindly to this message, and things quickly devolved into a heated exchange between Nick and his uncle Terry. After some harsh words, 
Nick packed his things and left in a rage. He would later email Terry to tell him he didn't have to worry about him anymore because he was moving to Vancouver. There were other ramifications from this fallout. Colin had seen an angry, unpredictable side to Nick that he didn't like, especially when it came to his son Brayton. He and Brayton's mum Tammy conferred and made the difficult decision to tell the 14-year-old that he could no longer associate with his older cousin. They were concerned about Nick's escalating personal situation and didn't want Brayton involved. At first, he was a little angry, like any teenager when told what to do or who to be friends with. That said, he did understand the situation. But also, this was 2005 and online messaging was a big hit with the kids. Colin soon discovered that Nick and Brayton had been chatting through MSN Messenger. And Nick returned from Vancouver. In the space of just a few months, he had bounced from British Columbia to Alberta and then back to his mother's place in Orillia, Ontario. The next thing the family knew, something had happened there and he'd run away to stay in a hotel with his mother's credit card. Since Brayton was struggling to say no to his older cousin, Colin and Tammy were concerned. Colin called Nick and politely but firmly asked him to stop trying to initiate contact. But the 16-year-old did not take it very well. He immediately became upset and told Colin, You can't make me stay away from Brayton. According to court documents, he then told his uncle to go fuck yourself. And then, he added, The Bullock family will die. And hung up. Colin called straight back. Nick picked up and said to his uncle, You can't tell me what to do. Colin argued that Brayton was a minor, only 14, and he was responsible for his safety. After more discussion, they hung up. Colin felt there was a good chance that Nick had now got the point. But even though his nephew was only 16, he had just issued a verbal death threat to the family, so Colin thought it would be a good call to report it to police so that it was on record. Even though Nick was now effectively living rough, he continued to try and contact Brayton online. And after everything that had happened, Brayton was certainly now wary of his cousin. But at the same time, he was 14, Nick was 16, and it's not a stretch to imagine being a young teenager with a cousin who was a little older and a bit of a rebel. And even though you know your parents don't want you to associate with them, you're intrigued. And when that cousin tries to message you, it's hard to say no. But also, Brayton knew Nick was unpredictable and didn't want to upset him and inflame the situation. So he would reply to the messages but only in a casual, shrug it off kind of way. I'm Christy, an Australian who's called Canada home for more than a decade And this is my passion project. Join me to hear about some of the most thought-provoking and often heartbreaking true crime cases in Canada. Using court documents and news archives, I take you through each story from beginning to end with a look at the way the media covered the crime and the impact it had on the community. 
This is Canadian True Crime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. March 9th, 2006 was a cold, foggy winter's day. There was a lot of ice on the roads and school was cancelled. Brayton was supposed to be going on a camping trip with his uncle Terry the next day and would be staying there the night before. That same night, his close cousin Kyla happened to be staying in the townhouse next door with a family friend, helping out with babysitting on and off. Brayton and Kyla had messaged each other and made plans for Brayton to stop by and visit. That evening, they were both logged in to MSN Messenger and heard a familiar beep. Nick Bullock had come online. Kyla watched as Brayton messaged his cousin back and they corresponded back and forth for about 10 to 15 minutes. Nick told Brayton that he was staying at a friend's apartment very close by and wanted to meet him at a park. Brayton decided there would be no harm in going to see what he wanted. Kyla wasn't so sure, but told herself it would probably be okay. Brayton put on his coat and left. Kyla was surprised when Brayton returned around 15 minutes later. He had his cousin with him, and it was obvious that 16-year-old Nick was high on some kind of drug. Nick walked in, sat down at the dining table and offered ecstasy to Brayton and Kyla. The 14-year-olds did not plan to take the drugs, but they also did not want to inflame the situation by refusing them. Brayton put it in his back pocket. The pair were growing increasingly uncomfortable. Then Nick showed them both a knife he had. It was a gold-coloured flick-style knife with holes in the blade. At this point, Brayton and Kyla started to worry. Their older cousin was visibly high on drugs and had a knife that he seemed to be showing off for some reason. And also, he was at a house where Kyla was temporarily staying with a family friend. The friend Karen wasn't home at the time, but Kyla knew she would not appreciate Nick's presence in the state he was in. Off to the side, though, Brayton told her not to worry. Kyla was relieved when Nick and Brayton started getting ready to leave. They said they were off to a nearby convenience store.
After Brayton and Nick left for the convenience store, Kyla received a call from her uncle Colin, Brayton's father. He'd been alerted to the situation with Nick and he wanted to see where everyone was at. Kyla told him that they'd walked to the convenience store and everything seemed okay when they left. Colin did not feel the same way. Before too long, he started trying to get hold of Karen, the family friend and owner of the townhouse where Kyla was staying. He told her what he knew and was wondering if she could have a look around. Karen said she'd leave where she was straight away and then drove around the neighbourhood to see if she could see either Nick or Brayton. She drove to the convenience store and told the clerk she was looking for two teenage boys, but he hadn't seen anyone that fit either Brayton or Nick's descriptions. Where were they? Back at the townhouse, there was a knock at the door. Kyla went to answer, thinking that it was probably Brayton returning from the convenience store. But it was just Nick, and he was holding a bottle of pop. He said Brayton had his hat and he came to get it back. Kyla said, I thought he was with you. Kyla noticed that Nick was no longer wearing his winter coat or hat. That seemed weird for a freezing cold winter's evening. And by this point, Karen had arrived back to her townhouse and saw that Nick was there, and he was acting fidgety. So where was Brayton? Nick said that they went to the convenience store, got drinks, and then Brayton walked him back to the apartment he was staying at. He thought that Brayton was continuing on to the townhouse, but obviously not. Panic was rising. Karen grabbed her keys and left again to have another drive around. Maybe Brayton was nearby at another relative's house. Nick stayed behind at the townhouse, making himself comfortable on the front doorstep fidgeting as he sipped quietly at his drink. Kyla stood in the doorway behind him, looking out. The place where Nick said he parted ways with Brayton was a very short distance to the townhouse, but by this point an immense fog had settled in, making it difficult to see very far. Kyla peered into it, hoping that any second she would see Brayton emerge from the fog and everything would be okay but she couldn't ignore a growing feeling that Nick's story didn't make a lot of sense. After a few more minutes, Kyla grew even more worried. She had to stay at the townhouse to watch Karen's sleeping kids and asked Nick if he would go and help look for Brayton. He got up and left. Nick left just before 9pm. At 9.13, as the Bullock family were in full panic mode, and Karen was driving around the neighbourhood looking for Brayton, a 9-11 dispatcher had responded to an incoming call. It was from a teenager called Leonard, who said he was at a nearby bushland called Lackey's Bush. His friend's 14-year-old cousin had been attacked and needed medical attention. Police arrived on the scene within minutes, making their way down the hill and over towards the creek. As they walked over, a teenager was yelling and screaming at them. You guys have got to help him. That's my cousin. It was 16-year-old Nick Bullock and he was pointing to a figure on the ground. 14-year-old Brayton Bullock lay there, motionless. Even though it was difficult to see in the fog and the darkness of night, 
There were obvious wounds and blood was everywhere. Brayton had not survived this attack. Nick told police that he had found his cousin like this. According to court documents, one of the police officers on the scene, Constable Jason Neville, had just arrived. As he surveyed the scene, he saw Nick passing him and said he felt a dig into his shoulder, accompanied by the words, He's dead, f*** it. One of the other officers saw that Nick's pupils were extremely dilated and asked him if he'd used any drugs. Even though Nick had taken two ecstasy tablets within the last few hours, he denied it. The constable asked him to wait inside a police cruiser for a few minutes. Nick was then released but told not to leave the immediate area because someone would be over soon to get his story. Nick walked over to where his friends were giving their account of what happened to Constable Neville. Neville would later testify that from the point that Nick walked over to the group, he quickly became a constant chatter in his ear. Neville eventually grew so frustrated by Nick's interruptions that he had to tell the 16-year-old to back off until he'd finished speaking to the others. Now, this next part of the story is told from two different perspectives, and they're slightly different. This will be important later. Constable Neville's side of the story was that Nick didn't appreciate being told to back off and shoved the constable from behind, knocking him off his balance and provoking him to restrain the teenager. But Nick's friends said they didn't see him shove the constable, they only saw Nick being restrained. Whatever the truth was, Constable Neville then administered a brachial stun to Nick described as an open-handed strike to the teenager's neck, followed by two punches to his face. He then put Nick in a headlock, handcuffed him, arrested him for obstructing police, and put him back in the back of a police cruiser. Neville then left again to continue getting statements. But before long, another officer came along to the car who didn't know that the scuffle had taken place or that Nick had been arrested for obstructing police. From the cruiser, Nick loudly protested that he'd been unfairly treated by Constable Neville and demanded his full name and badge number. Nick was assured that he would get the information and promised to calm down. His handcuffs were removed. After the statements had been taken from his friends, Nick was then driven to the police station for questioning as the person who had led them to Brayton's body. In the car, the officer described Nick as appearing emotional and distraught. He whimpered and asked if his cousin was going to be okay. The officer said he didn't know. In reply, Nick said, those guys are going to have to pay. It seems like a long story, but it happened so quickly. Karen, the owner of the townhouse, had been driving around a local strip mall. When she heard sirens, her heart sank. She followed the emergency vehicles and saw they were stopped around Lackey's Bush. Karen saw an officer standing there, so she stopped the car and ran over to him. After establishing who she was and who she was looking for, The officer told her he couldn't tell her what happened, but she needed to call Brayton's parents and have them go to the hospital. 
Karen begged for more information, but it was clear that this was all she was going to find out. Her shaking hands reached for the phone. She couldn't believe that she was the one making this call. Brayton's father, Collins, phone flashed with an incoming call. It was Karen and she didn't sound right, but all she would say was that there'd been an accident and told him to get to the hospital. Collins' first thought was that Brayton must have been hit by a car. He frantically started calling around to make sure the family knew to meet at the hospital. The Bullocks were a very close-knit family, both in good times and in bad. About eight or nine family members showed up, with Kyla on her way. When the group were ushered into a separate room to wait, they knew something was not right and started to wonder if maybe Brayton's injuries were worse than a broken leg. Two police officers came in with some doctors and one of them uttered three words that sent the family into a tailspin. Brayton is gone. His mother Tammy went into shock and couldn't comprehend what was happening. Gone? Where is he gone? A dark, sinking realisation washed over them. Brayton, their only son, had somehow passed away. Colin dropped to the floor. He asked where Brayton was. The response was that it wasn't possible to see him. I need to see my son. You can't. Colin was outraged. He demanded to see Brayton and was not going to take no for an answer. Brayton's mum Tammy was still in shock, so her husband Steve went with Colin for support. The four of them, Brayton's parents and their spouses, were co-parents and close friends, and together the two men walked to the room where Brayton had been transported, Brayton's father and his stepfather. They saw that the 14-year-old had been stabbed multiple times. They saw wounds in his head and chest. His shoulder-length dark hair was stained with blood. To Colin, the whole thing was a blur, but one thing he remembers clearly was that he and Steve both looked at each other and said, Nick. Luckily, he had already arrived at the station. The intake officers were told that Nick was in custody because he bumped into Constable Neville, but they were also told not to worry about the official process of lodging him because it was not expected that Nick's charges would stick. It was true. While Nick had originally been arrested and charged with obstructing police, this had been downgraded to breach of the peace and would now likely be dropped. But Nick wasn't aware of these changes. The intake officers were told that he was, quote, an emotional kid who's out of control. The plan was to put him in an interview room which would need to be locked when no one was there with him. They also made a note to keep him away from any phones. Before too long, two investigators came in to start the interview. Nick asked if they were going to read him his rights, but one of the officers replied and said that he wasn't charged with anything, quote, and you don't need a lawyer. We're just here shooting the shit. That's all. We're trying to help you, okay? Nick was told that when he'd finished giving his statement, they were going to drive him home. With that, the officers asked Nick to tell them everything that had happened that day. 
He told them that he'd walked to the convenience store with Brayton. There, he purchased some drinks for them both and a packet of gum. Nick said he put his baseball cap on Brayton's head, gave him a hug and said, see you later. Then they parted ways. Nick told police he went back to Leonard's apartment for a bit. Brayton didn't say where he was going, but Nick assumed it was back to the townhouse. Nick added that it was only after he returned to the townhouse himself that he discovered Brayton wasn't there. So he said he left to look for his cousin, stopping in at Leonard's to enlist some friends to help. And they found him there at Lackey's Bush, a large, undeveloped parkland known for bush parties and students who wanted to smoke weed and hide. And the entrance to it was only minutes' walk from both the apartment where Nick was staying with his friend Leonard and the townhouse where Kyla was babysitting. Nick told the police he had nothing to do with his cousin's death. He said he and Brayton got on well, and he was happy to see his cousin again after a few months away in British Columbia and Alberta. But police noticed a glaring inconsistency in the story. Nick had led his friends right to the location where Brayton's body was in Lackey's Bush. But he told police that at no point that night did he and Brayton go into the bush together. So how did he know where his cousin was? There was a recreation centre near the entrance to Lackey's Bush, and one of the officers asked Nick if there was any chance he'd be seen on the centre's surveillance cameras. With this question... Nick changed his story. He said, actually, he and Brayton had walked into Lackey's Bush to smoke a joint, but he couldn't remember if it was that night or another night. Eventually, he settled on it being the same night. He told the officers that while they were there, two random guys came up and asked Brayton if he had a cigarette. Brayton said he didn't, and one of the guys pulled out a knife. According to Nick, He wanted to get out of there and told Brayton to come with, but his cousin wanted to stay behind. Nick told the officers that he left and walked to the recreation centre washroom where he washed his hands and relieved himself. He said he then went back to Leonard's apartment and convinced his friends to come back and help Brayton. When asked why he hadn't mentioned this earlier, Nick said he could not justify why he was going back to Lackey's Bush so late at night and admitted that he'd changed his story, but didn't offer any more relevant or helpful information. The officers circled back. Quote, You just finished telling us that two guys just pulled a knife on your cousin and then you walk across and go to the washroom? Nick was asked if he thought to tell anybody around or at the rec centre that his cousin Brayton was in trouble down there. Nick said he did, Leonard. That's why he then went over to his apartment just around the corner. The officer replied, Yeah, it's just around the corner, but you took the time out to have a piss in the wreck? Nick said he had to go. The officer said, If somebody pulls a shank on my cousin, a guy I really like and haven't seen in a while and I'm so scared I want to get the hell out of there, I'm going to be making a beeline for help not stopping for a piss and then going to Leonard's. The officers noted that Nick had a cut on his neck and his face, as well as some redness and small cuts on his hands near his knuckles. 
When asked about it, Nick told them that he did not know how or when he was cut. After about an hour of questions, the situation had changed. The officers realised that Nick, the person they thought they were questioning as a witness, might actually be the one who killed Brayton. Nick was left by himself in the interview room as the police conferred about what to do next. During this time, he was being monitored, and the cameras captured him speaking to himself. This is what he said. Them bastards, I'll f***ing kill you both. F***ing want to stab my cousin, you f***ing silly ass f***ts. Bunch of f***ing dickheads. There's so many expletives, it's almost difficult to hear him say, want to stab my cousin. So, 911 had been called at 9.13pm. Around five hours later, at 2am, Nick Bullock was arrested for Brayton's first-degree murder. According to court documents, he uttered various expletives as he was arrested. He was cautioned and read his rights, and immediately asked if he could speak with his mother and a lawyer. Two hours later, the officers interviewed Nick again, this time in the presence of his mother. Nick again reiterated that he did not stab his cousin. When starting the interview, they explained to Nick's mother what had happened and what Nick had told them in his earlier statement. He interjected by protesting that he didn't know that making the previous statement was voluntary and no one had told him that he did not have to be there. In response, the officers explained that it was because he'd originally been interviewed as a witness, but because of his inconsistent statements, they changed their minds. The Bullock family were reeling in shock. They had no idea what to do next. The only thing they knew was that they had to stay together. After leaving the hospital, they congregated in the basement of Colin and his wife Teresa's house. And when nightfall came, none of them could bear to leave. It was a life-changing event for their family, so they stayed the night. And then the Bullock family stayed, camping out in the basement of Colin and Teresa's house the next night and the next, while they waited for Brayton's body to be released from autopsy. After 10 days, the family finally emerged out of their bubble with no choice but to deal with the harshness of the reality they found themselves in. While they had grown up with funerals being a normal part of life, no one could have prepared them for the day of Brayton's funeral. Over a thousand people attended the service, the biggest that had ever been held in the city of Barrie at the time, with people bursting out the doors and spilling out into the grounds with lots of extra chairs. Brayton had touched so many people with his positive energy, incredible laugh and wide smile. As you'll remember, he loved the Knights of the Round Table and left behind a treasure trove of night drawings, plans, research and of course that fiction book he was writing with Matt, his stepbrother and close friend. Brayton was buried in a real knight's armour. His mum, Tammy, told the congregation it was fitting. Quote, He was my knight in shining armour. Nobody is going to hurt him again. Dad Colin described the whole service as being a blur. He also remembered not being able to stop shaking because he was so angry about what had happened. See, the autopsy results were in. 
Brayton had 13 stab wounds on his body. At least one of the wounds was inflicted with such force, such rage, that the knife went through his skull and entered his brain. And he didn't have much of a chance to fight back. The report concluded it was likely one of the first stab wounds that inflicted the fatal damage and essentially incapacitated him. Brayton's death would have been quick, his young life over in seconds. But the attack continued after that, much longer than what was necessary. Brayton had been stabbed in his face, his eye, his neck, in his heart as well as his back and arms. It was an attack of white-hot rage. He still had that ecstasy tablet in his back pocket. Brayton's entire family were grieving and angry, but they needed to hang in there so they could find out what had happened. They still had absolutely no idea. Brayton was well-liked and had no enemies. Why would Nick do this to him? Maybe the answer was just that simple. The trial began in January of 2009, almost three years after Brayton was murdered. Given that this was a family affair, with one teenage cousin on trial for the murder of another, you might expect that family relations would be strained. But they never blamed Sean, Nick's father, for what had happened, and Sean was always remorseful about what his son had done. Nick's mother was, of course, on her son's side. At trial, she pleaded to Colin, Brayton's father, don't kill my son, please don't kill my son. The Crown did not offer a solid motive for Brayton's murder and would present no evidence that there was any animosity between Brayton and Nick. The court heard that the reason for the attack was likely simple. Both boys came from the same family and both had parents that divorced when they were younger, but their experiences differed. Brayton's parents got on well together, shared custody of him, and Brayton remained their focus. He was a grade-A student, a solid character, and was well-liked by everyone. On the other hand, Nick's parents were not in agreement when it came to co-parenting. There were likely other factors that impacted Nick's behaviour, but he was described as defiant, a loner, the family pariah who refused to go to school, bummed around, and got into drugs. Their fathers were brothers, and while Brayton was able to enjoy the benefits and support of a close-knit extended family, Nick, through no fault of his own, could not. The Crown presented the relevant testimony and evidence as proof of what happened. Their theory was this. On March the 9th, 2006, Nick Bullock was no longer enrolled in school, but he was in the area taking some shifts with his mother's partner's roofing business. After work, he went to the apartment of his friend Leonard, where he'd arranged to spend the night. Nick's life had spiralled out of control, and he was not dealing well with his problems. He'd bounced from Uncle Terry's to Vancouver to Alberta, before ending up back with his mother in Barrie, Ontario. He bounced from there and into a cheap hotel he paid for with her credit card. He was out of there now, and that cold winter's night, Nick had arranged to sleep on the couch of his friend Leonard's apartment. He changed out of his work clothes and then went to the bank with another friend to cash a work check. The friend testified that on the way he showed her a gold-coloured knife with holes in it. 
After he'd cashed the cheque, the two returned to Leonard's apartment at about 6.30pm. 16-year-old Nick took two ecstasy pills, stayed for half an hour and then went to use the computer of another friend who lived in the same building. This is when he used MSN Messenger to chat with Brayton at the townhouse with Kyla. The Crown told the court that at around 7.30pm, Nick left the apartment. Brayton had agreed to meet him at a nearby park. After meeting up, Nick took Brayton back to Leonard's apartment and introduced him to some mutual friends as well as Leonard's mother and her boyfriend. They only stayed for a few minutes and during that time no one detected any animosity between the two cousins. Through more testimony, the jury heard about how Brayton and Nick went back to the townhouse where Kyla was staying. Nick gave them the ecstasy and showed them the knife and then left with Brayton to go to the convenience store. This was around 8.30pm. The court heard that they never made it to the convenience store. Instead, Nick pulled his cousin into Lackey's bush and once inside the bush's dark cover, he took out the knife and stabbed Brayton 13 times, including in his head, brain, face, eye, chest, heart and back. This was a vicious, violent attack and there was absolutely no explanation for it. The court heard that after the attack, Nick attempted to concoct a backstory complete with fabricated footprint and evidence. The Crown presented surveillance footage that showed Nick heading out of the woods and up to the rec centre. He dumped the copper or gold-coloured knife in the garbage bin and the police found it there afterwards. There was also evidence that Nick had attempted a personal clean-up in the rec centre washroom, where traces of blood were found in various places. When tested, it was found to be his own blood. As you remember, when Nick first went to the police station, the officers noted that he had a cut on his neck and face and some redness and small cuts on his hands. For the next part of the plan, Nick had to show face at the convenience store. The surveillance footage captured him and only him as he purchased drinks and some gum. Brayton was not there at any point. The Crown alleged that Nick was planning to tell police that Brayton was with him, and so that's why he used his debit card instead of the cash he was carrying to prove he was there. And, of course, he bought two drinks. With Nick believing he had that piece of evidence taken care of, he arrived back at Leonard's apartment alone. According to court documents, he was wet, thanks to that clean-up he did at the rec centre, and so he went to Leonard's bathroom and changed out of his jeans and T-shirt, then put them into his backpack. Police later found the jeans. They had Brayton's blood on them. His blood was also found on Nick's winter coat. The court heard that once Nick had changed his clothes, he went back to the townhouse, spoke to Kyla, and pretended to be surprised that Brayton wasn't already there. Karen, the woman who owned the townhouse, testified about him looking fidgety before he left to look for Brayton again. The jury heard that minutes later, Leonard answered the door to his apartment nearby to see Nick there in a panic. By now, it was just after 9pm. According to Leonard and their mutual friends, Nick frantically told them that his cousin Brayton was in trouble, the one he'd introduced them to earlier. 
He said a few guys had grabbed Brayton and dragged him into Lackey's bush. The group left straight away, ran over to the bush, and Nick pointed down a hill to an area where he said Brayton was under attack from two strangers. They got down there, by the creek, and there was 14-year-old Brayton, lying on the ground. The others watched as Nick ran over and knelt down beside his cousin, checked for a pulse and placed his hand on the side of Brayton's chest. He shouted that Brayton was dead and hugged his cousin's body with big, exaggerated movements. His friends testified that Nick was visibly upset, very emotional, distraught, hysterical, crying and freaking out. They saw him punch a few trees and roll around in the bloody snow around Brayton's body. The Crown told the jury that this display was intended to throw off the police evidence and the emotional hysteria was likely to have been Nick attempting to give what he thought was the appropriate response. Other evidence presented included Brayton's black toque and Nick's baseball cap, which were both found within five metres of Brayton's body down in the bush. Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now, but I realise what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? (sighs) Get Pet Essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. The defence argued that Brayton and Nick were good friends, but that night they got into a family dispute. Quote, There are no facts to show that he planned the killing, but rather it happened during an argument between the two cousins. Nick's defence lawyer told the jury that this argument, combined with the fact that Nick was high on ecstasy, was what caused him to murder Brayton, to stab his 14-year-old cousin, 13 times, so hard that the knife went into his brain. Not surprisingly, the Bullock family do not have anything complimentary to say about the defence's case. It seemed like a ridiculous stretch to state that ecstasy and a teenage argument can cause a violent, rage-filled attack on a 14-year-old. And Nick had been carrying around that knife in a threatening way that night. He'd shown it to his friend earlier and then to Brayton and Kyla at the townhouse. But the defence had another angle to argue. Nick Bullock's lawyer launched into the well-known and utterly deplorable strategy of blaming the victim. The Bullock family watched in shock as the defence put together a weak narrative that Brayton had emotional issues of his own because of his parents' separation. Not only was it not true, but there was also no proof and no evidence of this. Colin recalled a moment when the defence implied that Brayton, who never got into any serious trouble and was a straight-A student, may have also been involved with a gang. The inference was that that made him and Nick two peas in a pod. While these defence arguments didn't seem to make much of a dent in the Crown's case, what they did do 
was inflict new wounds on Brayton's family and then throw salt in them. As for Nick, he was never observed to show any sign of emotion on his face the entire trial. But the Bullock family, who were represented there every day, had felt gut punch after gut punch. They'd lost Brayton and they knew nothing could ever bring him back. But their experience dealing with the criminal justice system was crushing and left them feeling re-victimized. Unfortunately, it's a byproduct of the system's design. The criminal justice system was designed to focus on just that, the criminals. And sadly, those on the side of the victim feel it every step of the way. They're left out, they're under-prioritized and continuously re-traumatized as everyone focuses on the rights of the criminal. And it starts right from the beginning. According to the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime, when the loss first happens, their loved ones often feel insecure and don't know who to trust or rely on for support. They suffer physically, emotionally, psychologically and financially from their victimization. They're often so stricken with grief that they can't work and struggle to hold down their jobs. And with this loss of income comes poverty and destitution. This happened to Colin and Tammy and their families. While a victim assistance program helped them navigate the legal system and better understand the court's proceedings, they had to go searching for other assistance available to victims of crime, including therapies and financial assistance. They discovered that there were over a thousand groups in Canada set up to help victims, but the problem was they seemed to work in silos, offering overlapping services, and it was overwhelming to sort through it all without guidance. There seemed to be no central service, no place to start, and they got buried in red tape, often encountering barriers to access like requests for referrals from police or other early responders. And as families try to put their own lives back together after tragic loss, they have to navigate the ongoing complexities of the criminal justice system and the effects it has on them. For example, the publication ban. Because Nick Bullock was a young offender, his identity was protected under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, but because they all had the same last name, Brayton's name was also put under publication ban. His family were not allowed to mention his name in conjunction with the crime. He was referred to in the press as a 14-year-old boy, a nameless and faceless victim. There was no honouring Brayton as the victim. The funeral announcement couldn't say what happened to him or connect him to the crime. It could only say that he'd passed away suddenly. As Colin put it to journalist Tracy McLaughlin for the Toronto Sun, quote, The day my son died is the day he lost his identity. We all lost our identity. Nick Bullock, now 20 years old, was found guilty of first-degree murder and the crime was determined to be serious enough to have him sentenced as an adult, which meant the publication ban was removed. Psychiatrist Lindley Bassarth, described as an expert in youth forensic issues, testified at the sentencing hearing. He diagnosed Nick with, quote, signs of psychopathy, a lack of empathy, a sense of his own superiority, and a likelihood of committing further crimes. Quote, it's possible he could be a psychopath, but we can't tell until a later age. 
He also said his diagnosis might not be complete because Nick refused to talk about the murder after his lawyer advised him not to. Now, while you might think that a family's right to give a victim impact statement at sentencing is a given, that's not at all the case. The Bullock family were at first told they couldn't submit one, and Brayton's mum Tammy had to fight for it. In the end, the statement they submitted was heavily censored by the court, who argued that it went against Nick's rights. Nick was also given the chance to say something to the family before he was sentenced. He would be getting the maximum sentence for first-degree murder anyway, so what did he have to lose? He chose to say nothing. In describing the sentence, Justice Alfred Strong described Brayton Bullock as a loving, energetic, respectful, outgoing young man with a wonderful disposition. The crime was described as chilling, cold and calculated. Quote, This was unfathomable violence caused by Nick Bullock. Nick was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole before 10 years, the maximum a judge could sentence him to as a young offender. That would bring him to 2019. The judge told the court that if Nick were released from prison, he would be worried for the Bullock family. As court adjourned, Brayton's parents, Colin and Tammy, wept and hugged each other and their family members. Because the publication ban had been lifted, they could now speak openly about their beloved Brayton and what they'd been through. They spoke to the press and applauded the judge's decision to sentence Nick as an adult. But Tammy described themselves as a broken and incomplete family. Quote, No justice in the world will make us whole again. As for Nick's refusal to say anything to the family, Colin told journalist Tracy McLaughlin that they just needed to know why. Quote, The silence is killing us. We need to hear his voice, something, anything, to explain why he took my boy, my little buddy. The family had been going through it when it came to the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, but getting to acceptance was hard when Nick would not provide a reason. And another piece of collateral damage is the loss of friends. Colin discovered that losing their only son to murder really showed them who their real friends were. Quote, All you're left with are family and a small number of true friends. I asked him why he thinks friends leave. He said they just don't know how to talk to someone experiencing that level of grief. They can't deal with the trauma of it all and feel it's putting them down. And there's also an unspoken expectation that you should be over it by a certain time, or at least appear to be over it when in their presence. They get frustrated when they see you're not. But what they don't understand is that you're now a different person. There's no getting past it. Colin said that's what this level of loss does. The family channeled their frustrations into activism for victims of crime. They joined with others who saw a need to close the gap between the rights of perpetrators and the rights of the victims. Victims, survivors and their families needed to know what to expect and where they could go for help. Brayton's mother Tammy, along with his aunt Cheryl, 
were instrumental in the organisation of a Walk for Justice and conference that hoped to shine the light on the situation, improve the rights of victims and their families, and to show support to families who were starting their own journey through the legal system. They started putting together a giant list of all the different services available from both the government and other organisations, with the intention of packaging it together as a resource that could be handed to other families in the early stages of their loss. It would tell them exactly where they needed to go first and what they needed to do to start getting assistance and advocating for themselves and their rights. The Bullocks were also consulted in the development of a new Canadian Victims' Bill of Rights, which sought to provide a balance to the established legal rights of the criminal. Collins' wife Teresa told the Sudbury Star that crime suspects are immediately read their rights and given access to a lawyer who tells them what to expect as they make their way through the legal system. But victims, she said, are often not given the same level of information. The establishment of the Victims' Bill of Rights in 2015 was a great achievement and details that victims have the right to information, protection, participation and the right to seek restitution. There was still a way to go, but through their new connections, the family were able to start and continue some important conversations. During Nick's prison sentence, he bounced between about seven different prisons, most of them maximum security. The family were told that there are only two situations in which this would happen. One, he was getting transferred for his own protection. Or two, he was getting transferred for the prison's protection. Because of Nick's propensity to get into trouble, he was always put in some variation of solitary confinement. In 2017, the very real problem of solitary confinement was the subject of a court case in B.C., and Nick decided to speak publicly about it, taking a call with CBC News from his then-prison in New Brunswick. In the piece, journalist Alison Crawford reported that Nick said there were, quote, other ways to go about handling things than segregating people. He added that the isolation was getting to him. Quote, We're still human beings. Like locking anyone in a room for 23 hours a day and only giving them a shower every other day and having limited contact with people is not the correct way to go about reforming people. You're making them worse. You're making them less able to integrate into society. You're making them more likely to have mental health issues, which will not only potentially put people in danger in the public, but suck up resources in the public too. Nick made some very valid points. But to the Bullock family, it seemed strange for him to beg for compassion when he still had yet to take accountability for killing Brayton. He hadn't even so much as expressed remorse or issued the expected half-hearted apology, and his lawyer was preparing an appeal. Despite all of the moving around and the segregation, Nick was still productive in prison. According to journalist Tracy McLaughlin, he completed his high school diploma and took two music courses. Nick's lawyers ended up appealing, and if you listen to the last episode of this podcast, the grounds for appeal in this case are going to make you scream. His legal team argued that the police violated the Youth Criminal Justice Act 
when it came to the statement Nick gave before they changed their minds about his involvement. Let's go through it. As you'll remember, when he was first brought to the station, it was as a witness, and the police had already made their first mistake by not telling him that he did not have to go to the police station if he didn't want to. The officer who settled Nick in the interview room also did not tell him why he was brought to the station. Nick was not told that even though he'd been originally charged for obstructing the police, that charge was lowered then dropped. He didn't know that he was no longer in custody, no longer being detained. He was not told that he could leave at any time and that he did not have to provide a statement. And then his official interview, the one where the investigators started off thinking he was a key witness, but changed their minds the more they heard his side of the story. As you'll remember early on, Nick himself actually asked them if they were going to read him his rights, and they explained why they weren't, and also told him he didn't need a lawyer because they were just shooting the shit. Under the Young Offenders Act, if Nick was detained at that time, he needed to have a parent or adult present. At his trial, the judge had ruled that he had not been detained at the time, so the officers did not have to take those steps under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. But at appeal, Nick's legal team argued that he actually had been detained at the time. And because the police made so many errors in regards to Nick's rights, it meant his statement and its inconsistencies should not have been admissible in court. During the appeal process, Nick's legal team also tried to have fresh evidence admitted. It was related to that scuffle he had with Constable Jason Neville, who originally put him in a headlock and arrested him for obstruction of justice before handcuffing him and putting him in the police cruiser. According to Neville, his actions were in response to Nick shoving him, but Nick's friends testified that they didn't see that happen. They only saw the officer restraining the 16-year-old with a brachial stun. As I said earlier, this would become important later on. Four years after the trial, Constable Neville was involved in a completely separate incident that had some compelling similarities to his involvement with Nick Bullock that day. According to court documents, Constable Jason Neville was dispatched to deal with a fight that had broken out at a mall and ended up getting into a violent altercation with one of the people involved. Neville administered several blows to the head and body of the civilian, who was taken to hospital with significant injuries. Constable Neville's story was that he was provoked and therefore justified in his actions. But it all came apart when surveillance video surfaced that showed Constable Neville's story was not true. The video showed what was described as a sudden and violent attack by Neville, who inflicted numerous blows to the head and body of the civilian. And once the injured man was taken to hospital, Neville instructed security officers to wash away the considerable amount of blood that had been left after the attack. He ended up being charged and convicted of several counts of causing bodily harm, as well as fabricating evidence and obstructing the course of justice. He resigned from the Barry Police Service and his appeal was dismissed. Jason Neville served a year in prison and was released in 2014. 
Now, when it came to Neville's interaction with Nick Bullock, Nick's lawyer argued that the same thing may have happened there, and Neville may not have been provoked by Nick as he claimed. And the problem with this was that at Brayton Bullock's trial, the judge relied on Constable Neville's testimony to inform Nick's overall credibility. The judge ruled not to admit this new evidence about former Constable Neville, but it was a moot point. The appeal itself was successful without it. In June of 2018, the Ontario Court of Appeal ordered a new trial. They found that police, quote, failed to take the proper care in dealing with a young offender and overturned Nick's guilty verdict. But seven months later, the day before that trial was supposed to begin, Crown lawyers took the Bullock family into a room, sat them down and delivered the news that there would be no trial. The Crown wanted to avoid a trial for several reasons, so they were going to allow Nick to plead guilty to a lesser charge than the first-degree murder he'd been convicted of. On February the 13th, 2019, Nick Bullock pleaded guilty to manslaughter. The judge said, quote, The immediate concern was for himself. He tried to give himself an alibi. It was calculated thinking. But the judge was of the opinion that Nick was remorseful for his actions and that people had to, quote, consider that some rehabilitation must have occurred given the amount of time Nick served. So even though there was no evidence that Nick had participated or expressed interest in any rehabilitation programs, he hadn't communicated or demonstrated any remorse for killing Brayton, he'd been moved from prison to prison due to problematic and violent behaviour and was currently in maximum security, the judge wanted the court to believe that he had achieved rehabilitation just through the simple passage of time. With that, she sentenced Nick to the amount of time he'd already served, which was 13 years. At 29 years old, he was released from maximum security prison straight into the community as a free man. And while Nick's defence was that he was high on ecstasy when he killed Brayton, he was not banned from drugs or alcohol upon his release. Brayton's family thought that under the circumstances, Nick would be monitored when he got out of prison, but that wasn't on the cards either. He was only banned from owning weapons and also from contacting the Bullock family. They were devastated and felt betrayed by this plea deal. Manslaughter. All planning and intent to kill had been removed. So even though Nick ferociously stabbed Brayton 13 times, he somehow didn't mean to kill him? As his mother Tammy would put it, how can you savagely stab someone to death without intent? The family also questioned the integration plan they'd been told about. They were well aware that the Canadian criminal justice system is built on a principle of rehabilitation, and the plan was for Nick's eventual reintegration back into society. They were prepared for that, but they also understood that there would be evidence of rehabilitation and remorse and some record of good behaviour, not to mention a plan for how Nick, a 29-year-old who'd been in prison since he was 16, was going to integrate himself from a maximum security prison back into the community. 
Ironically, for the Bullock family, it felt like they had now been stabbed in the back. Navigating the justice system as the family of a victim is harrowing, and they felt re-victimized at every turn. And after all the effort they'd put in with their advocacy and activism work, and all the work they saw others doing too, nothing had changed. The criminal had far more rights than the victim. They were also scared. Tammy told journalist Tracy McLaughlin that Nick had been released to live in the same area of Barry that she lived, and she lived in fear that one day she would walk into a grocery store and come face to face with a man who stabbed her only child to death. And Nick had continued to demonstrate violence. In the year before he was released, he had accrued a new charge for assaulting a police officer in prison, which was still pending. The Bullock family had lost numerous friends over the years, and now that Nick was out again, there was fear of retaliation upon the Bullock family and anyone who associated with them. But most of all, Brayton's parents felt they'd let him down, failed him. Tammy said, I'm sorry that your life meant nothing. Colin added, I feel like I failed him. I just want to tell him I'm sorry, buddy. I'm just so, so sorry. Sean, Nick's father, passed away from terminal cancer. In hospice, he and Colin had a heart-to-heart about what had happened, and Sean told his brother that he blamed himself for what Nick had done. Colin made sure to tell him, Sean, it's not your fault. You did nothing wrong. Even though Brayton was an only child, his parents were good friends and co-parents before his death and remain that today. The family has continued to raise awareness of the problems with balance in the justice system and the changes that need to be made to lessen the blows suffered by those on the side of victims and survivors. In the 15 years since Brayton's death, Tammy and Colin have both received multiple awards for their efforts, including the Queen's Jubilee Medal. In 2014, Tammy received the Victim Services Award for helping train police officers to be more sensitive. Quote, Tammy's perspective on the lasting impact of the words, actions and processes of police officers on victims has helped the officers better prepare for the incidents they attend. The family knows there is still work to be done and look forward to more changes. They'd like to see more funding for victim services, and for victim service organisations specialising more instead of overlapping their offerings. And on the victim advocacy side, Colin wishes it was more centralised. Instead of splintering into local groups fighting for different things, families need to fight together for change, he says, and to make sure that they're on the same page about what needs to be changed. According to the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime, The objectives set out in the Victims' Bill of Rights have not been met and it's time for a review. For example, in the six years since the bill was enacted, its integration into the justice system has been sporadic and inconsistent. There are limited training opportunities for criminal justice officials in how to deal with the victims in a sensitive manner, and there's no public education effort to inform citizens of their rights if they find themselves victims. Common complaints include victims finding out about trials after they've occurred. And when they discover they have a right to submit a victim impact statement, 
it's often after the deadline has passed. They're often not told about changes to the offender's incarceration status and there have been instances where a victim has accidentally come into contact with them after they've been released. There is a role for the public to play in this because we never know when we might find ourselves in that same position. Look out for victim advocacy and service groups in your area. Learn about their situation and challenges, and if you can help them, attend events and join the fight. You can also contact your local MP or the Federal Ombudsman for Victims of Crime. See the show notes for a link to resources including the Canadian Victims' Bill of Rights, a pre-written email to send to your local MP, and some key websites related to helping victims of crime and their families. On March the 9th, 2021, the Bullock family remembered Brayton Bullock on the 15-year anniversary of his death. They have been through so much, but are closer than ever. Today, Brayton would have been 29 years old. I asked Colin what he might be doing if he were alive today. He thought for a minute before replying, whatever he wanted. Colin suggested we end the episode with a reading of the poem Brayton wrote when he was just 11, that eerily prophetic poem that demonstrated his uncanny ability to sense things. Here is My Identity, read by his father Colin. I just wanted to leave you with this. When Brayton was 12 years old, he had to do a school project, and it was called My Identity. Within the book, It had Brayton describe his physical self, him and his family, the sports he liked, who he admired, uh, world issues. And under world issues and how to change them, this is what he said. I wonder what would happen if there's no such thing as murderers. I think it would be a good thing because people would walk around feeling a lot safer. There would be less feuds within family. People would still get hurt, but fewer people would die. There would be fewer people wanting revenge. There would be no need for the death penalty since no one would be put to death for killing someone else. I think the population would be happy because their family and friends would live longer. It would be a lot better world if there is no such thing as murderers. Thanks for listening and special thanks to Colin Bullock for all of his help and input into this episode and also to Rodney Stafford for connecting us. Colin told me he enjoys talking about Brayton and wanted to tell the complete story through this episode, so we spent many hours on the phone to get all those extra details. Thanks also to Tammy, Cheryl, Kyla and the rest of Brayton's family for their help, activism and positivity. This is a special family. Canadian True Crime donates regularly to Canadian charitable organisations that help victims and survivors of injustice. This month, we have donated to the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime, who offer support, research and education to survivors, victims and their families. You can learn more at crcvc.ca or see a link in the show notes. Today's podcast recommendation is I'm Not a Monster. It's a BBC News podcast and it tells the story of Sam, 
a single mom from Indiana in the U.S. who married a man from Morocco, who she says tricked her into moving to the center of the ISIS caliphate in Raqqa, Syria. Shockingly, her 10-year-old son would be featured in an ISIS propaganda video that was seen around the world, and there's chilling audio of Sam's husband teaching him how to take apart a loaded gun and put together a suicide bomb. And while Sam says she was forced there through her husband's trickery, her friends and family say she's a known thrill-seeker and there is some suspicion that she might not be telling the truth. Journalist Josh Baker goes to the US and to Syria to investigate and discover the truth about her actions. Was she forced to go, or did she volunteer? I have been binging this podcast. It's called I'm Not a Monster, and it's been nominated for all kinds of awards. Check it out. Canadian True Crime is a completely independent production funded through advertising and the generosity of supporters. Thank you to everyone who listens, who rates and reviews the podcast, and who supports us on Patreon and Supercast. To learn more about these episodes and for full credits and resources, see the page for this episode at canadiantruecrime.ca slash episodes. While you're there, you can submit case suggestions, follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and learn more about how to get early ad-free episodes and bonus content via the exclusive feed for supporters. Thanks to the host of True for voicing the disclaimer and also to We Talk of Dreams who composed the theme song. I'll be back soon with another Canadian true crime story. See you then.